Hello and welcome to the Proverbs 1810 podcast, episode 55. And if you're saying that you know truth, if you're saying that you know what is truth, then you've got to have something to actually measure that against. Proverbs 1810 podcast. 25 feet, a thousand layers. How many millions of years did that take to form them? The answer is it took three hours. Proverbs 1810 podcast. This is the Proverbs 1810 podcast presented by me, Paul Taylor, in association with Proverbs 1810 Media. For all information about the podcast, including where to find the RSS feeds to put into your favorite podcasting software, please visit proverbs1810.org. Enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Proverbs 1810 podcast, episode 55. This is uh, just the second of these podcasts that I'm doing with the new formula, the new uh, uh, way of doing things where I'm trying to investigate uh, a number of different topics that I used to cover in separate uh, podcasts. So we've got a lot to cover in this uh, particular um, episode. I'm going to be talking about uh, the ending of the mask mandate on airplanes and what does that mean for the way we live our lives. And I'm going to be talking as well, uh, giving you a bit of exegesis of scripture. We're going to be looking there at uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. That's a passage that I was looking through in my old podcast uh, called What Next, which was on uh, eschatology, on uh, the end times things. So we're going to have a look at that um, particular um, uh, subject uh, if you were look, listening to the What Next podcast, or if you weren't, then go back and find them. But if you're listening to that podcast, you'll know that I was going to go through the four signs of the return of Jesus Christ uh, that, uh, that Jesus himself gave um, about his second coming. And in the last episode of What Next, we looked at the first sign. So I think that this week, this in this particular episode, we'll have a look at the second of the four signs, which are there in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. So that's what's uh, coming up in this program. But first of all, uh, let's look at um, arguments that Christians should not be using um, with um, in trying to explain apologetics and trying to defend the Christian faith. And by the way, I'm going to try and look at that in a couple of different ways because I've got uh, different camera angles now. So I'm going to try and use those as well. I can turn around and look at the camera here. And if I do that, <laughs> I, should have been, I should have had this set up before, but if I do that, then of course, once I uh, click back to uh, the first camera, then I'm looking in a different direction. Hopefully you'll find, uh, um, won't try and do too many gimmicks, but hopefully it will uh, make things a little bit easier for you to see. Well, the subject, which I've covered a few times before, the subject of the Callum cosmological argument has come up recently with a number of Christians talking about it and pushing it as one of the best ways of showing that God exists. And I've written about this extensively and I've broadcast about it before. And let's emphasize, please, I need to emphasize to you at this point that the Callum cosmological argument is not a suitable means of argument 
um, in order to attempt to prove that God exists. Not at all. And I want to explain why that's the case. But first of all, you might be wondering what the Callum cosmological argument is. So let me briefly uh, give you an outline about what the argument is. It is, in fact, a syllogism. And syllogism is a, a, log, a set of logical steps. Now, people should be using logic more. Logic is something which is completely biblical, so I don't have any problem with the concept of syllogisms. The idea of syllogisms is that you make two premises, and, uh, those, uh, uh, and then from those two premises, you derive a conclusion. Uh, it's necessary then if the conclusion is going to be sound that it flows from those first two premises. By the way, a sound argument is not necessarily a true one because you can have a sound argument where everything flows and the conclusion is definitely based on the first two premises but one or both of those premises might be incorrect in which case, although your syllogism is logically sound, it isn't true. So it's perfectly possible to have a conclusion that's not true based on faulty premises. And those premises, therefore, are quite important. So let's just have a look then at how this works. This is the substance of the uh, Cosmo, uh, uh, Callum cosmological argument. Here goes. So the idea of the argument is uh, that there are two premises. The first premise is that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, is that true? Um, <laughs> there are actually many people who say that that is not uh, strictly true. Many atheists will uh, actually argue this uh, point right there at the beginning. They say what, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, I, I, I have some sympathy with it. It seems to make some sort of sense that if, if something has a beginning in time, then something must have set it going. Uh, it does seem logically logical, but the point is that it isn't necessarily a premise because you have to prove this to be true. And since you have to prove it to be true, it isn't a premise. And it means, in fact, that the Callum cosmological argument comes unstuck at this point because it's a circular argument. Well, let's just go on and see how it is, because you may disagree with me. You may say that seems to be a perfectly reasonable starting point. The second premise is that uni the universe began to exist. Now, once again, how do you know that that is the case? Um, the, the, the principal proponent of this Callum cosmological argument is uh, a, a so-called Christian apologist called William Lane Craig. Uh, very clever man, but you know these two premises are problematic. How can you prove that the universe began to exist? Now, you cannot scientifically prove it because in order to do so, you would have to be able to go back in time. Uh, and of course that isn't possible you can't go back in time and prove this to be the case now we could assert that this is true uh, that the universe began to exist and of course I believe that the universe did begin to exist it began to exist when God created it but the, the issue here is that William Lane Craig thinks that this is uh, an independent fact uh, that has nothing to do with um, the um, uh, the, the start of the uh, uh, of the universe by God, nothing to do with creation. He simply uh, thinks that it has been proven that the universe be, uh, began with a big bang. And here's the important point here. The Callum cosmological argument is very much based on an astronomical evolutionary idea that um, 
thing, things must have had a cause if they if they begin to exist and that the universe began to exist uh, because it's supposedly proven by the Big Bang. But of course, as you probably know, I don't actually accept the truth of the Big Bang. So here are our two premises. The um, Oops, that didn't work very well, did it? I was trying to uh, show you the third of the premises then. Uh, I thought I had practiced this beforehand, but uh, I didn't, obviously. But um, maybe you can see that there. And I'll just try and uh, bring it up again and see if I can get this to work for you. Here we go. So, uh, yeah, we said that whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. And thirdly, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, this is logically sound. If you accept those first two premises, if things uh, that begin to exist have a cause and the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. My issue here is that those two first two premises are not proven by themselves. They're not standalone self-evident truths. Now, I do believe that they are truths, but I'm saying that they are not um, logically independent and uh, you actually need to go further back than that. Supposing they were independent, the idea is that there's a fourth point to this um, uh, argument, which is that the cause of the universe is God. But here's the issue, uh, and I've written about this before, and it's quite important that we think about uh, um, uh, the use of this, uh, this argument. Um, I do really think it's quite important that we consider the use of this argument, and I'm going to show you what I think about it and, uh, and, and, and how it fits in. With, uh, uh, with a biblical position. Now, some years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Only Believe. And uh, this book is about uh, apologetics and how uh, you can do apologetics from a biblical point of view. And uh, I thought it was quite an important uh, book to put forward. And I included something about the Callum cosmological argument in that book. This is what I wrote there. I, I started by showing you that uh, there are these uh, three points, uh, the two premises and the, um, uh, and the uh, conclusion. And that's the starting point for Lane's argument. He says this. He says, premise one seems obviously true, or at least more so than its negation. First and foremost, it's rooted in the metaphysical intuition that something cannot come into being from nothing. To suggest that things could just pop into uh, being uncaused out of nothing is to quit doing serious metaphysics and to resort to magic. Second, if things really could come into being uncaused out of nothing, then it becomes inexplicable why just anything and everything do not come into existence uncaused from nothing. Finally, the first premise is constantly confirmed in our experience. Atheists who are scientific naturalists thus have the strongest of motivations to accept it. And of course he goes on to spend many pages uh, on this and he uh, locks horns with uh, many atheists who um, uh, disagree with him on that. And it's a sophisticated argument, but you see if he's got to do so much effort to defend that first point, then there is obviously a point, a problem with that first argument. Now, it sounds as if I'm going to dismiss a huge chunk of William Lane's discussion as if it was wrong, and I'm not dismissing it on those grounds. What I need to do is to explain to you why it, uh, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. Uh, he has to object the objections of so many atheists to arguments, that indicates that he's on the wrong path. It's not that his discussion isn't interesting, it's just as a different context uh, where his, his discussion might be relevant. It's not relevant as a proof of God, because it self-evidently fails. 
Now, after he spent a long time uh, trying to defend that first premise, he then spends a considerable amount of time analysing the conclusion, three, that the universe has a cause, and he tries to discuss the nature of that cause without reference to the Bible. This is what he says. On the basis of a conceptual analysis of the conclusion implied by the Callum cosmological argument, we may therefore infer that a personal creator of the universe exists, who is uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably, unimaginably powerful. This, as Thomas Aquinas was wont to remark, is what everybody means by God. And he puts the word God in, in, uh, in, in quote marks. Uh, in fact, uh, a friend of mine who has been utilising this particular argument recently in a video that he released uh, simply commented that this sounds like the uh, God of the Bible. Well, does it? You see, that's not what's meant by God in double quotes. In fact, the idea of what's meant by God in double quotes is irrelevant. I'm not interested in God. I'm interested in God. None of that extra-biblical discussion reveals God to be a loving, holy, merciful, or for that matter, a God who's angry with sin. We've got to remind ourselves that these things are precisely what the Apostle Paul has told us about uh, uh, um, the nature of God, and it, that's revealed to every single person who lives from the creation of the world. In other words, the calm cosmological God has a small g, and he doesn't have the complete nature of the God of the Bible. If that's the case, if the Callum cosmological God isn't the same, isn't, doesn't have the complete nature of the God of the Bible, then he's not the same as the God of the Bible. And that means, and here's where you might find this hard, but I'm going to assert it anyway because I believe it's very important. The God of the Callum cosmological argument is not the God of the Bible. He's therefore a false God and an idol. And I know that that will make many people angry. Am I saying that William Lane Craig doesn't believe in the God of the Bible? No, of course I'm not saying that. And there are many classical apologists who will do precisely the right thing in showing Christians from the Bible what God is like. I'm simply pointing out that their argument for the existence of God is fallacious. It's wrong and it's unbiblical. It doesn't prove God at all. If it proves anything, and I have my doubts about whether it's capable of doing even this. But if it does anything, it proves a form of theism. The existence of a probable God. The God of the Bible is not a probable God. He's the only God. And therefore, we should dismiss the Callum cosmological argument uh, from our armory of weapons. In fact, the place where we should start is not the two, the, prem the two premises that I gave you. The place where we should start is the Bible itself. And this is the presuppositional position. We start by acknowledging that God exists, asserting that God exists because we know him and everything else follows from that. There is to be no premise other than the one that God exists, and our, our whole argument is built on that. God exists, his word is true, and everything else is built from that. That is the only uh, argument, you see, for the proof of God. The proof of God is that if he did not exist, then everything about logic, about reason, and about the universe would be completely nonsensical and impossible. Now, 
there's a lot more I can go into on that subject and maybe I need to do that on another occasion because it's foundational to the subject of apologetics but I'm going to leave it at that at the moment because what I wanted to do is a bit negative but sometimes negatives are important I wanted to show that the Callum cosmological argument is not actually one that we should be using and it's very important that we need to recognize that fact now, there's been quite a bit in the news lately about the uh, removal of the mask mandates from aeroplanes because of a um, ruling in a court in Florida. And many people have seen that as being something of great significance uh, and uh, great hopefulness as far as they're concerned. Maybe we can now get back to normal in the way that we live our lives. Well, I've said many times on many podcasts, there ain't no going back to normal this is normal now you're going to have to accept it and uh, so I, I talked I was thinking quite a bit about the uh, the mask mandate and the removal of the mask mandate one day as I was uh, down by the riverside so uh, I, I recorded a little bit to camera down by the riverside so the views you're going to see here are of uh, the Pondere River and um, some nice scenery and I was trying to explain to you about uh, the issues to do with the mass mandate. Let me show you, run that film for you right now. If you take my advice, there's nothing so nice as messing about on the river. There are long boats and short boats and all sorts of craft. And cruisers and keelboats and some with no draft So take off your coat and hop in a boat Go messing about in the river So the mass mandates are all over now um, They've uh, had that court case in Florida And it's declared the mass mandates to be unconstitutional uh, Which we all knew and so all the airlines have removed their mask mandates. Uh, lots of cheering among uh, staff and passengers. And so, you know, we're gonna go back to normal now. Everything's gonna be okay. Everything's, uh, everything is now gonna go back to the way it was before, which is what we've always wanted. Is that right? Wrong. It's not gonna go back to normal. And, uh, one of the reasons we know that is the fact that the CDC are appealing. Why are they appealing? Do you think that they're going to put the mask mandate back in place? I doubt it. I doubt that the airlines are actually going to put the mask mandate back in place. The reason for the appeal from the CDC is for this reason. It's to establish that they think that they have the right to impose mask mandates again. It's not that they necessarily want to put the mask mandate back again now. It's not that they necessarily want to do any lockdowns now, but they want us to know and they want to lay down this marker to say, if we decide that there's going to be a mask mandate, if we decide that there's going to be a lockdown, if we decide that for the good of your health, you're going to stand in the corner on one leg, then that is what is going to happen. The CDC are making sure or at least attempting to make sure that they have the primacy in anything that is vaguely to do with health though of course as we know none of this was to do with health it was all about political control 
you know, you cast your minds back to um, 2020, the beginning of 2020, and I, I, I've probably told you this before, you know, that uh, there was uh, the church that I was in, we had a, a breakfast every um, Wednesday. We had a men's Bible study and we had a men's breakfast immediately following that. Uh, we went off to a local grill and uh, had a lovely breakfast and uh, one of the people in the um, uh, study, in fact it was the study leader, and his son was back basically on furlough. His son um, was a, an, a teacher of English in a school in China. Not just anywhere in China, but in Wuhan, in China. And he was back. He'd come back just before Christmas and uh, he was expecting to be journeying back to Wuhan uh, for his position his, uh, to carry on teaching and he was not able to do so because Wuhan had been locked down because that you know you've got the outbreak of COVID so they said and uh, there were uh, enforced masks and people were being were, were locked down and over breakfast you know we discussed this and we all agreed you know we could never this could never happen in the United States you can't imagine a city like Portland or Seattle being locked down uh, it just just could not happen this is something that wouldn't happen in the West laughing on the other side of my face now because it did happen I was wrong it did happen the lockdowns did come the mask mandates did come uh, not just here in the United States but over the world in many places in more serious ways and that's the world that we now live in that is the new normal and it's not that they necessarily want you to do that all the time they want to be able to establish that you will do what they say this has been the end of freedom this has been the end of liberty and we've let it pass by and many of us have been talking about this for two years I've been trying to get people to understand that this is where we're heading and now we can see that other things that they have done in China are going to come along and uh, you know we now have these reports from Shanghai that this huge city is it the most populous city in the world I think it probably is has a population in that one city that far outstrips the population of most uh, American states, far outstrips the population of many countries around the world. And they've locked them down. And they're not, they're not even allowing them out for food. They've even bolted their doors shut from the outside so they can't get out. You can't go out and, and shop. And it could be that some of those that are being bolted up are the ones who've got the low social credit rating. Uh, social credit ratings are coming to the United States. How do I know? Because the corporate version is already here. The ESG measurements that uh, businesses are now measured not by in terms of the profits that they make for their shareholders but their scores on these ESG metrics, environment, social issues and governance. Uh, are they governed in a particular way with a particular percentage of uh, uh, ethnic minorities and what's more, gay people and transsexual people and so on on their board? Uh, is that the governance there, the social issues? Uh, how are they faring on their support uh, for um, LGBT issues? Environment, what are they doing about uh, the uh, climate change scam? I'm sorry, issues, dangers and so on. Um, we already know that people have said that um, uh, during the COVID lockdowns 
there was a reduction in carbon dioxide emissions and people have already been suggesting that there could be lockdowns even when there's no virus uh, lockdowns in order to uh, save carbon emissions and that's a whole other subject I'm not going to go down that Benny trail now I've done it many times and I'll come back to it on other occasions but I think those of you who were listening to this or watching this know what my views are on uh, the climate change scam and hopefully that will tell you what my views are on that so these things are coming that's the corporate version it's not that difficult to have an individual's version uh, after all, we've seen the germs of it in Western countries, including in the United States. We've seen that certain big corporations who are in league with uh, the current regime in, in Washington uh, are quite happy to ban people from social media based on the sort of things that they say. Um, and in Canada, we've seen that based on the things that people say or the things that they donate their money to or the causes that they choose to join, we've seen that people can have their bank accounts frozen and not able to get hold of the money. Not just the people involved in the truckers' dispute, though that was wrong enough as it was, but people who gave money to support the truckers or gave them food or gave them gasoline. So we've got all the things in place all the items in place ready for a personal ESG, just like a Chinese social credit system. It's there. It's going to happen. So you think you can rejoice because you don't have to have a piece of cloth over your face when you fly on an aeroplane? They want to reserve the right to put that back again, even if they don't do it now. We are not back to normal. We have, there is no new normal. I was very impressed with what uh, James White said this week on uh, the dividing line when he said people have been asking him, you know, are you going to start flying again now? And he said no. Uh, his method of travelling now with um, a fifth wheeler is uh, something that he finds good and he's able to talk to people in small churches. And uh, I'm so glad that he's doing that because that's where it's going to happen. I think the big churches we've seen are the ones that have largely gone along with uh, the problems. They've gone along with uh, uh, the government line. They have capitulated. Uh, it's the small churches where the true Christian radical resistance is. Uh, the biblical positions and uh, of course not all of them some of those are folded too but uh, that is largely where you're getting the principled biblical resistance so I'm glad that he's going to carry on traveling the country with a fifth wheeler I'm going to carry on trying to uh, broadcast these sort of podcasts um, and uh, I'm trying to keep you awake and alert to all these issues uh, and we're going to try and relate those back to what the Bible says. Well, it's really nice down there by the banks of the uh, Ponderay River. It's a place I like to spend uh, a bit of time with uh, my dog, and uh, it's a great place to be and a great place to be able to uh, deliver part of the uh, program for you. So anyway, now let's um, move on to another issue, and this is where I want to get into a bit of biblical exposition. And most of the biblical exposition that I've done on this particular um, 
uh, podcast, particularly in its old form, was to do with the book of Genesis. I'm not leaving the book of Genesis, but we need to do a few things on a few different occasions. I do want to pick up what I was doing on my old What Next podcast, and I had been talking about the uh, four signs of the coming of the, uh, the Son of Man. These are the things that Jesus himself talked about in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. And uh, so maybe it would be quite useful at this stage just to read through the relevant section of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Um, uh, so I'm just going to bring that up on the screen uh, as soon as I can uh, find where it is so that um, we can uh, talk about that particular issue. I just need to... Um, <laughs> I notice here that I've got a parallel Bible up. I don't actually want the parallel Bible up. I just want one version of the Bible up. So I'm bringing up the English Standard Version. And uh, there's a few things at the beginning that you might think, well, I ought to comment on. But I've already commented them on those on the What Next podcast. So you might need to go back and find that in order to... Uh, um, to understand what I've been saying. I'll perhaps just mention a little bit in brief. This is what was happening in Matthew's 24. Um, Matthew's Gospel 24, um, we read this. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be uh, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, many uh, post-millennialists will use that to say that what all Jesus was talking about in the discourse to follow was the events of um, uh, uh, of uh, AD 70. Uh, now, clearly the events of AD 70 when the uh, temple was destroyed are in view here. Jesus is talking about that, but it's not the only thing he's talking about. Let's have a look what else. He says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples uh, came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You've got to understand the importance, of course, of the Mount of Olives and uh, what's actually happening there. The importance of the Mount of Olives is uh, great in eschatology because we read in the book of Zechariah, this is the place where Jesus is going to return to. When Jesus' feet set foot on the earth again, it will be at the Mount of Olives. So let's, let's read on. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now here we know, of course, there were people before AD 70 who were saying they were the Christ, but there's a lot of people after AD 70 saying they're the Christ. And so we, he, we see here that he's talking about the future, not just AD 70. This is typical biblical prophecy which Jesus is given, giving to us because many biblical prophecies do have an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. Uh, there's lots of examples, so I could pick out many, many examples, but a prime example would be um, Isaiah's prophecy when, it's, uh, when uh, we read that the virgin will be with child. Um, that's important because it was going to have an immediate fulfillment. It, there was a, 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 something that was being talked about there where a young woman um, was, uh, was with child and we're talking about someone within the royal line. But clearly that, those words are much more 
literally fulfilled by um, the first coming of Jesus Christ being born of the Virgin Mary and I think everyone uh, acknowledges that's the case because Matthew's Gospel uses that quotation so uh, you've got uh, a double prophecy there you've got lots of other prophecies which are double prophecies in that particular case that speak about something close to and far away at the same time this is what's happening here Jesus is uh, talking about um, uh, 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 his own second coming uh, the disciples said when will these things be talking about this not the one stone being laid on the other they assumed that that meant the sign of Jesus coming and the end of the age but actually um, those things are different questions when will these things be is one question what will be the sign of your coming is another question and the end of the age, a sign of the end of the age, is a third question. They didn't realise that they were asking three different things. But Jesus answers all three of those questions. But they're not actually the same thing. And, the, and uh, many post-millennials can't get this because they assume that the sign of the coming of Jesus will be the same as the sign of the end of the age. And that's not the case. Um, Jesus' coming, uh, the sign of his coming, is before the sign of the end of the age because uh, 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 there will be that thousand years at the end of this age when Jesus is reigning on earth from Jerusalem. Um, now, there are uh, other Christians, dispensationalists, who will put an extra sign in there, but Jesus only talks about the three things, the ending of the temple, the sign of his coming, and the end of the age. He didn't talk about some pre-coming seven years before that sign of his coming uh, that isn't mentioned there so you see both the post-millennial position and the dispensational pre-millennial position are both incorrect Jesus is uh, quite clear in what's being said here so let's go on then in verse 6 we read you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you're not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places all these are but the beginning of birth pangs pains now i went into a lot of detail in the previous uh, episode of uh what next um so there are um three uh, there are four signs then of the coming of jesus four specific signs that he gives that's the first one the idea that there will be disasters some of those disasters are natural disasters like earthquakes some of them will be man-made disasters like wars some of them will be both like famines which are uh, uh, straddle both those uh, particular things uh, they look like natural disasters but quite often they're caused by um, uh, human human activity uh, wars and so on the uh, second sign then is what we're going to go on to now which is a falling away an apostasy there will be a great apostasy um, and the third sign is the um, uh, a dictator in the Middle East which we'll look at uh, in, in a future episode and the fourth sign is uh, signs in the um, universe uh, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving light, stars falling from heaven. Let's have a look at all those things there. Um, all these four signs, by the way, have to come before Jesus comes back. And we'll talk about how Jesus is going to come back on a later occasion. But all four of those signs have to be in place. Now, wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and famines are taking place. We've seen those. Uh, so that first sign has been fulfilled and it's continued to be fulfilled. It's ongoing. Uh, 
The second sign is only partly fulfilled. There has been apostasy. There is going to be considerably more apostasy. So we're getting a lot of that, you see. Um, we, talk, we can talk about apostasy of the past, uh, the cults arising at different times. We can also, of course, talk about um, uh, um, different, different religions, different sects occurring, especially within the church. But we can also talk about in what looks like the true church of God, other people falling away because they can't take the issues that are coming along and I'm not talking about our disagreements on uh, non-salvific issues okay uh, those those issues will be uh, made clear uh, but the, there are non-salvific issues that won't affect how um, how God uh, works with us you know my post-millennial brethren are my brethren they are saved people and uh, just because they be they don't believe that Jesus is going to rule on earth doesn't mean that they're not going to be saved at that point they will and they will be ruling on earth with Jesus uh, and for many of them he'll be saying you good and faithful servant because many post-millennial people have done a great deal in terms of, of analyzing what the world is like perhaps m more so than many of the rest of us uh, sometimes people have asked me are you a theonomist and I don't really like the uh, connotations that, are, that go with the word theonomy that's my only objection to it uh, it actually refers to the law of God but here's the point if I'm trying to change laws if I'm trying to make a witness stand and I, I should be wanting to change laws by the way I should be wanting to have an influence on this world and there should be people who stand for political office and if people stand for political office where are they going to get their ideas from what's going to influence them we've seen too many people who are, who are who want to make some of the right policies but the reason why they compromise is because they don't have a, a biblical basis or at least don't argue a biblical basis to what they're doing so you get people arguing for heartbeat bills and uh, you know to save many unborn children and don't get me wrong I'm going to support those particular things because they will reduce the number of abortions but it's still only like reducing uh, uh, the um, number of Jews going into a concentration camp it doesn't actually solve the problem we've got to be opposed to abortion from first principles uh, to say and why do we say that we say uh, biblically it is murder because biblically that baby in the mother's womb is made in the image of God and therefore the destruction of that image of God is murder and we're therefore taking out the ideas of our laws not from what we think we can get away with or persuade other people no we're taking the ideas of our laws from the bible it's directly from god we, and we shouldn't be afraid of that we should stop apologizing for that and i've spent a lot of my life apologizing for that i was a member of a political party in uh, britain many years ago and tried to put forward some ideas about uh, uh, re reducing abortion and I should really have been putting forward ideas about abolishing abortion but I was afraid and I was trying to work through the system and I didn't want to tell people that I was a Christian and that's where I was coming from and there should have been a lot more boldness there a lot more boldness and I don't know what would have, would things have changed if a lot more people like me had stopped being afraid and started uh, really speaking truth uh, uh, to the political powers of the of the time and 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 uh, uh, those things are, have not gone away and they're even more important today so many theonomists uh, if you want to use that term uh, are post-millennial and so they have been doing a lot of good 
and uh, therefore paradoxically their work for the kingdom and their preparation for the millennium kingdom has been greater uh, than those people who believe the millennium kingdom is coming and they're going to be there in that millennial kingdom they're going to be given the uh, uh, they've, been, they've proved faithful in so many big things so they're going to be given charge of many cities in that millennial kingdom that they're not even expecting to be in at the moment but it's going to happen so you see it's not a salvific issue and I'm expecting them to be taking a major part in this uh, um, so where are we going with that because I got myself a bit sidetracked and onto a bunny trail there just to defend my uh, brethren who take different views from me uh, yeah the uh, the dispensationalists are expecting to be taken out of this world seven years before uh, the uh, millennium kingdom begins um, they're going to be surprised but uh, that they're not taken away and they're going to realize eventually that there's a man in power in the world who is the antichrist um, but those who are of genuine faith are going to cope with that they may be surprised by it it may cause them a few problems but they're going to cope with it and they're going to survive through that uh, tribulation period which i don't think will be seven years i think it'll be three and a half but we'll come to the justification for that on another occasion but they're going to they're going to work through that they're going to be witnesses and they too are going to therefore have uh, control of many cities in the millennium kingdom because they'll have been good and faithful servants uh, but i don't take either of those views as you know i'm a post-tribulation pre-millennialist and i believe that's what jesus is talking about here so regardless of the fact that uh, I'm probably one of the weaker of the uh, uh, witnesses on this issue, let's go and have a look at what Jesus is saying here in, uh, in the scripture. Uh, so let's get back to uh, that Bible passage there. And uh, I want to start from uh, Matthew 24 and verse 9. So here we are. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Who's they? It's very important you don't skip over little words like this. Who are the they who are going to deliver you up to tribulation? Is it going to be the nation rising against nation? It doesn't seem to be. We're not talking about nations. We're actually talking about those many who come in Jesus' name. They're the ones who are going to lead people astray. They're going to lead many astray. And they're going to deliver you up to tribulation they these are people who call themselves christians we've seen that under covid haven't we uh, the churches that have shut down and the uh, they so-called christians who've uh, um who've caused problems at that point and they're not going to be able to cope with this whole idea of tribulation and to save their own skins because they're not really saved they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and have you put to death and you're going to be hated by all nations for Jesus' name's sake. It goes on to say then that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So again, we're seeing that our betrayers are from within the church. They're the ones who are coming in the name of Jesus, saying, uh, maybe saying, I'm the Christ. And it's those people who are going to fall away. And many Christians, or, or actually not Christians, but people who are in the church who look like Christians, are going to fall away. And it's those people who are going to be betraying uh, each other and uh, betraying us. There are going to be many false prophets arising. And of course, there have been false prophets. The world is full of pro false prophets. It's full of false prophets like the Watchtown Bible Tract Society, uh, like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. 
um, other false prophets uh, uh, around. There's, um, <laughs> I'm going to quote another um, post-millennial group here that's so worth listening to a podcast. As a podcast comes out of um, uh, the uh, Apologia Church that's in um, Phoenix, Arizona, there's a podcast that comes out of that called Cultish. And they've spent a couple of years going through um, many cults and trying to analyze them and uh, explain and, and warn you about false prophets. And some of those that you've probably heard, if you listen to that podcast, some of them that are mentioned are things that you may not have realized are false prophets that sound as if they're within the Christian church. I would agree with them that they're not. Uh, so as well as talking about Mormons and about Jehovah's Witnesses and about the Jim Jones group and things like that, they've talked about places like uh, Bethel Church in Redding, California, uh, and many other uh, false prophets such as uh, uh, you know people in, in those sort of positions. Now, um, if I just switch to the parallel uh, Bible here, we'll get some sort of idea of what exactly is, is being said. It's taking a little while for that to come up. Um, it's got to search through the memory of my computer, which is running a bit slow these days because it needs uh, some extra memory in it. Um, but there it is. I've managed to get it up there. So let's just have a look at it. Uh, okay, so we're reading there that um, there'll be people who will deliver you up to tribulation. Tribulation is the Greek word uh, telipsis. Um, uh, and uh, when you get the word chi, which is often translated as and, chi doesn't mean quite the same as and, because quite often if you use the word and, the uh, things that are being joined together by the word and are interchangeable. In other words, if it was the English word and, you could say... Um, they'll put you to death and they'll deliver you up to tribulation. But uh, the Greek word chi tends to be in order, so you can't swap those ideas around. In other words, the deliverance up to tribulation comes before the putting to death. Okay, so these people will think that they're doing God a favor um, because, uh, when they deliver you to tribulation. They'll call you the extremists, they'll call you the uh, troublemakers, and they'll deliver you up to tribulation first before uh, people start being put to death. And of course, after that, we're going to find ourselves hated by um, na uh, nations for, my, uh, for Jesus' name's sake. Uh, when it says about many falling away, that word falling away is quite uh, important there. And it's actually the word scandalizo. I, I don't know how to pronounce these Greek words. But to scandalize is to um, illustrate a scandal. And a scandal is when someone has tripped up. Uh, quite often it's used in modern parlance for those who have been involved in uh, um, um, sexual wrongdoing, uh, particularly in power. You know, you get the uh, 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 the well-known pastor, for example, who uh, uh, has been with a prostitute. And there's a scandal about that because he's been tripped up. He's been enticed into sin. And uh, there will be many Christians who will be enticed into sin, but it's not really just going to be sexual sin, though there is going to be that. There's going to be those Christians who um, do evil and approve of those who do evil, as uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. So they'll be approving, they'll either be involved in uh, abominable practices such as um, uh, homosexuality or uh, changing genders, both of those uh, um, 
are things that I've talked about in reference to uh, the book of Genesis and um, we'll see those in society and Jesus' warning about those uh, because they're things that will scandalize that falling away is often to do with that um, so we're going, we're going to see that and we're going to see people uh, hating one another not just uh, uh, hating us we said that they're going to be that we're going to be hated as Christians in the previous uh, verse in verse nine. There, we're going to be hated by all nations. But we find out here that these people who are falling away are going to betray each other and hate each other. There isn't going to be a unity among these people who are apostates and who are falling away. There's going to be um, a, a sense of betrayal all the time. We said about false prophets arising and leading many astray. And then it says because lawlessness will be increased. Now that word lawlessness is really um, quite important. Uh, and it's an increase in lawlessness. Uh, let's just try and find the uh, the, the um, proper uh, Greek word here. I want to find the, uh, the, the, the Greek word there. It's, it's quite important. And it's the word anomia. Okay. Nomia means law. So anomia is lawlessness. Okay. Just like theism is a, be a belief in a vague type of God. Atheism is a, uh, a belief in no God. The opposite of a belief in God. Uh, anomia there is lawlessness then in that case lawlessness will be increased and we'll expect then when the global um, um, antichrist is uh, coming to power that there will in fact be lawlessness and we see that in, as, as tyrannical regimes are increasing and as, our, as western countries that have been blessed by the gospel for so long are beginning to fall away from that and are beginning to illustrate lawlessness do you honestly could you honestly tell me that um, lawlessness has decreased in the western world in the last couple of years not at all it seems to have increased so we can see how this is uh, is going on but here's the the hope here that there are going to be those of us who endure to the end and i expect to endure to the end not because i'm strong i'm not but because it's jesus who helps me to endure I will endure simply because Jesus will make it so. It may be that I'm saved by the skin of my teeth and that could well be a, a possibility. But I am going to endure to the end because that is what Jesus has, uh, has decided. Uh, my, my life is completely given over to him for that reason. The other piece of hopefulness here is that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, so we're going to see the gospel proclaimed in a great way. And that's something we can expect during the tribulation. Because this apostasy is going to come to its full measure during that tribulation. Before the tribulation and then during the tribulation. And here's one of the things that many dispensationalists get wrong. Even those who are clued up. There are many dispensationalists who are clued up. And who see that things are getting worse and worse. And they see things happening that they expect to see during the tribulation. And instead of looking at those things and saying. Well that means that we are. Are going to be here during the tribulation because it's just going to get worse instead of saying that they they coined this phrase saying well these uh, events of the tribulation are casting a shadow over the gospel age now there is nothing in the bible about tribulation events casting a shadow over what's going on now that is not mentioned anywhere instead 
what you find is that things are getting gradually worse until that you will have the extreme um, evil, the extreme badness during the um, the, uh, the the tribulation. So those. Um, birth pangs are not shadows of the tribulation they are the slippery slope towards the tribulation and we can expect the same things in the tribulation but that much worse so those verses there from verse 9 to 14 are talking about what we can expect to happen as uh, uh, as the tribulation comes along and uh, the next sit there the next uh, section that we're going to go into is going to be talking about the um, uh, is going to be talking about the coming of the Antichrist so we'll be into the tribulation itself and uh, I'll maybe just look at a couple of other scriptures next time uh, that show you that uh, Christians do have to be on the earth when the Antichrist comes. That's not going to be next week because I think next week I'm going to go back to the book of Genesis. There's a few other things I want to talk about in Genesis so it might be uh, two episodes of time when we get back to this particular topic and have a look again at Matthew's Gospel chapter 24. Well, we have covered a lot there, and I think it's time I began to wrap this podcast up. Uh, let me tell you a couple of things first. There is uh, an, one audio podcast that I'm not wrapping up into this um, coverall podcast. Um, that one podcast that I'm not wrapping up into this is the uh, Classical Focus podcast. And the one that I'm just preparing now, I'm, doing, I'm really enjoying doing a lot of research on it. Uh, I want to talk to you about a Haydn symphony. Um, I've, I've, I've got you to listen to a Beethoven symphony before, Beethoven's uh, fifth symphony. I may have mentioned to you that Beethoven composed nine symphonies and it's quite a, an effort to go through those symphonies, but it's worth doing because they are so enjoyable. They're so wonderful to have in the background uh, for what you're listening to. Um, how many symphonies did Haydn write? A few more than nine. The answer is actually 104. In fact, actually, some people say 106 because there are two other pieces that are pretty much really like symphonies. But there are 104 which are numbered as symphonies. That's a lot more than Beethoven. Now, Haydn's symphonies were shorter than Beethoven's. But I want to explain to you what Haydn was doing with those and how he believed that these uh, symphonies uh, were really exp uh, from a Christian perspective. They came from the, uh, his faith in God. And uh, there's a lot I can say about Haydn. I don't want to do that podcast now. That's going to be a separate podcast. Listen out for that. That's what I'm preparing them. I'm finding it so exciting. There's one Haydn symphony that I've picked to illustrate the issue. And uh, uh, that's what I'm going to be covering in the next episode of Classical Focus. Now, if you want to support all my podcasts, there are three places you can do so. I only expect people to pick one of those three places. But there's a variety of choices you can have. Um, you can go to Subscribestar, or you can go to Locals, or you can go to Substack. You'll find um, the links for those on the uh, webpage um, for this particular uh, podcast. Uh, I think I need to make that appear on the screen. And um, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. I need to make that appear on the screen. Let me get that uh, in place here. Um, I didn't even I didn't even tell you who I am on the screen, did I? But there it is. Uh, um, okay, my name's Paul Taylor, and you can go to the website of Proverbs 1810 Media. But um, 
The other thing is that you need to go to my website, proverbs1810.org. Excuse me a moment. <coughs> Sorry about that. I had a little tickle. Um, I better have a cup of tea. I better have a drink of tea. And by the way, here's a bit of product placement. One of my favorite favorite networks uh, of podcasts is the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Uh, that's a bit of free advertising for them. Go to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and listen to some podcasts there. Um, that's where I get my, my news from. I listen to their news program every day. Very important to get a Christian perspective on news. Uh, what was I talking about? Someone remind me. I was talking about subs uh, subscribe star. I was talking about locals and I was talking about... Um, Substack. All three of those pages where you can sign up for a minimum of $5 a month, you'll find on the webpage. Just go to proverbs1810.org uh, and look for the, uh, the uh, this particular podcast, uh, the, the Proverbs 1810 podcast episode 55. Go and have a look for that and uh, uh, click on one of those things. It's subscribestar.com forward slash Paul F. Taylor. Or it's uh, paulftaylor.locals.com or it's paulftaylor.substack.com. Go and have a look at one of those three places. Don't subscribe to all three. You know, you can't afford to do that. I'm not trying to get you to do that. Pick one of them that you think is uh, the one that you'll enjoy most. And whichever one of them you go to, you're going to be able to get uh, episodes of my extra, specially entertaining podcast, um, uh, which is really just uh, travelogue or historical uh, background to England, uh, the country where I come from. Uh, that podcast is called My World. Um, you'll need to go to the, one of those three sites to be able to get hold of that. Hopefully you'll find that of interest uh, to you. Uh, it's 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 uh, really what you used to call infotainment. It's enjoyable info information uh, about uh, the United Kingdom, particularly written for my American audience. Though at the moment, a good many of my supporters are actually from the United Kingdom themselves, and I value all my. Uh, subscribers those of you who are subscribing to me thank you so much for doing that it helps to pay for these podcasts and it helps to pay for the server that I use to put them on and it helps to pay for my time uh, to be able to write books so thank you for doing that thank you for listening to this podcast let's meet up again on uh, the uh, the next episode of the Proverbs 1810 podcast in the meanwhile goodbye and God bless